welcome to the Logistics Tribe. I'm Boris Felgendreyer, founder of the Logistics Tribe, and the topic of today's show is supply chain visibility. A lot has been said about this topic over the years that I've been in the business, but to this day there are still more questions than answers about what visibility you actually need to run a global supply chain and how best to achieve it. Today's show features two figures from the industry that have dedicated large parts of their careers to help companies achieve supply chain visibility. Our guest Tobias Larsen was the founder of Resilience360 and is now with Altana AI, a company that promises to provide a single source of truth for global supply chains. And our host, Jonah McIntyre, is a serial startup founder and currently leads procurement products for Transporion. Before we get started, a quick thanks to our great sponsors, Grey Orange. Grey Orange's smart robots and AI-enabled automation platform are spreading across warehouses around the world. If you're looking to automate key warehouse and fulfillment functions, you have to check out Grey Orange when you have a chance. I will leave a link in the show notes. And now, please enjoy the conversation around supply chain visibility with Tobias Larsen. Uh, Tobias, thanks for taking the time to join us today. I've been really excited to get this interview underway, and I know that you and I so chatted about it for a few months now. Uh, maybe for the people who haven't already had a chance to interact with you or, or follow you on social media, can you give us a bit of background on yourself? Where did you start in the industry and where have you gone uh, since then? Yeah, great to be on the podcast. Um, I'm a big fan of it. Uh, so I started in logistics about 2005, back in my home country, Sweden, as a management trainee. And uh, it was really a great experience because um, I got to do very sort of hands-on operational things. I, I well, went on courier rides and I took calls and, and customer service and I worked in warehouse night shifts and so on. So I really got to get the full, full on experience on logistics. And that really gave me a very good view on what, what the industry is and, and uh, rather respects for the different kind of roles in, in the business. So, um, and, and then almost from there, I, I worked in a couple of different roles, but moved to the DHL Innovation Center and about 2010, got involved with uh, a topic we at that time called Resilience 360, which was really about creating visibility on on risk and uh, managing risk better in supply chains. Uh, it was just 2011, we had um, the earthquake in Japan and um, and a lot of companies, global manufacturing companies were disrupted um, by not being able to get sort of uh, key materials out of, out of Japan had very little visibility, even if they, you know, what suppliers they had there and uh, what, is, what they could expect from the disruption. So we built Resilience 360 at the DHL Innovation Center as sort of a value-adding solution to DHL services. And then that later became a really quite successful business and uh, we scaled it well and eventually carved it out out of DHL and became its own, own business, Evistream Analytics. But um, I left that about a little bit more than a year ago and today I'm involved with a company called Altana AI, which I'm sure we're going to talk more about. Yeah, I'd like to hear a little bit more about it. Maybe just the the high-level pitch, the elevator pitch. What is Altana's uh, perspective on visibility? What are you guys trying to do? What's your secret sauce? What Altana is is doing is building a single source of truth for supply chains, basically a living map, or maybe like our CEO would call it sort of the Google Maps of supply chains, which is what I think is a very appropriate way of of, uh, a good analogy, an analogy for what it is. Uh, what we're doing is really building that sort of, you know, supply chain map, stitching together billions of data sets 
public data, also private data, and ability to learn from from data, from government data, from enterprise data, and build sort of a knowledge graph of, of what supply chains look like. So uh, how companies are connected, who's trading with whom, who's a supplier to whom, what are they trading, what products, what materials, what quantity of products are going between companies, and where are these supplier manufacturing sites sitting? You know, where are they geographically sitting? Where are the facilities of those companies, um, manufacturing sites, the geolocations of those? So really like in, uh, you know, an end-to-end, the map, of global supply chains. That's actually one of the challenges with supply chain visibility, I think in the industry is that it's universally acknowledged as a desirable outcome. You want to have more visibility into your supply chain. You want to have more visibility into uh, exposure in your supply chain, for example, in order to do the things that supply chain managers and leaders need to do. They need to control for risk. They need to optimize. They need to minimize inventory. They need to maximize throughput, et cetera. And yet when you try to get into the details of how to achieve that, what, you know, what is supply chain visibility in, in practice, then it becomes much more challenging. And I, I, one of the things I find interesting about what you described as sort of the Google Maps of, of supply chains is that we reach for these metaphors. I, I mean, some of the ones I can remember are, for example, the glass pipeline. You're, you remember when people talk about the glass pipeline as the yeah. metaphor for supply chain visibility of this, this linear thing that kind of was a tube of manufacturing or or transportation processes and warehousing processes. And you would be able to peer inside of it for the first time because it's no longer lead or whatever the other material was. Now it's glass. And then I think bit by bit that turned into something that looked more like networks. And then that has transformed again into into metaphors like Google Maps, a sort of multi-hierarchical surface that, that covers the whole world that you should be able to kind of search within instead of trace something like a purchase order or supply order or uh, or uh, skew through. That is what we're trying to get at, you know. So we're restitching together these billions of data sets, sort of public trade data, um, bill of lading data, ownership data, so Absolutely, shipment, shipment data to really understand like how, how everyone is connected in the, in the supply chain. And that gets you to ask a lot of interesting questions, you know, where, where does, you know, products really originate from? How does my value chain look like? If you think about some of the sort of COVID-induced issues in the supply chain today, sort of uh, many of the issues that companies have are not sort of with the direct suppliers. It's materials that they source that come from a, a second or a third or a fourth tier. If you think about semiconductors in the automotive industry, that's really a tier three or a tier four issue for many of the automotive companies. And they simply don't have the visibility of who they're sourcing from. They may have some some idea in some cases, of course, some of the big players, but ultimately very low visibility on you know, what happens beyond the first tier suppliers. And interesting, even when we think about master data in companies today, many companies don't even have correct addresses of their uh, where their first tier suppliers actually manufacture something. So if you think about the procurement tools that are uh, used today, they ask you about a you know a billing address, but they don't sort of really capture the supply chain that's necessary. So, so many companies, even though we work with us, could be up to 50%, don't even have good address data on their first year suppliers and where they actually are located. And I think if you think about sort of a lot of things and, and the, the changes that companies are going through now, going from more efficiency mindset to, to resiliency, that data is going to be extremely crucial. You know, if you think about planning, for example, planning your supply chain, some of the decisions about what do you want to do, you know, multi, multi-sourcing or, or nearshoring. You need to understand, you know, a bigger picture of what that looks like for the suppliers you would then maybe switch to. So you're not sort of, again, sort of dependent on, on, on the wrong sources. And, and also capacity management. Capacity 
I think capacity has been a tremendous issue. Of course, you know, driven by demand changes, but many companies have just very little view on capacity. And, um, and I think that's something we're also aiming to help and help companies with to understand potential capacity constraints. So, you know, one example we have is um, working with a pharma company that had about 60% of their, their revenue it was through six tier one suppliers and, and all these six tier one suppliers had a common tier two suppliers and they were really concerned about, you know, why they were not getting enough capacity through those tier ones. And uh, it turned out that the tier two supplier, you know, were giving all of business to, um, or not, you know, capacity to, to other tier ones that weren't really part of that pharma company supply chain. So there's a lot of things that require to have a deeper view of value chains today which I think companies really are lacking. And then I think ultimately that's what Altana is striving to, you know, to help and, and help companies to build their own view of, of you know, an extended supply chain, the supplier network. Also, yeah, it's, it's, really topics. It's, it's, it's sort of crucial to be able to look deeper. So there's, there's many, many aspects we can talk about here, but it's, um, in a nutshell, that's, it's, that's what Altana is all about. That's, it's really interesting. Uh, it, you know, it connects to a larger discussion that we've been having on this podcast. And I think the industry has been happening in the last year, which is 2021 was a moment where supply chain became a truly a CEO topic for most businesses. It was not, um, it, I think it's fair to say one of the, one of the things that happens in our industry is we obsess over details like, uh, the availability of transport capacity and the cost of shipping, but CEOs don't, I mean, it, it, most businesses, those, those inputs are going to be sub 10% of the controllable cost. And it just isn't, uh, right. It just isn't relevant actually for the CEO to, to consider those things. Whereas I, I was just reading today, and if you saw this, that uh, Toyota's passed General Motors, for example, in the U.S. as the leading as the leading car brand or manufacturer, and they did it on the base of supply. They had a better access to semiconductors, and so their sales grew by ten percent year on year, whereas General Motors fell by eleven or thirteen. And the first thing with my mind is, well, you know, yes, that makes sense, right? We're finally in a moment where constrained supply is lasting long enough to have an, an annual impact, you know, a, a really sustained impact. I, th- I find it's uh, just to connect back to kind of the history of supply chain visibility, just one of the things I wanted to ask your opinion on is I sort of see a contrast between one of the early supply chain visibility pioneers was was Walmart with their heavy investment in sort of upstream visibility to their suppliers and coordination of the the flow of orders and goods, but that was very much a optimization, efficiency, cost reduction play. And then you've got something like resilience through 60 for at DHL, which is, and, and others, which were based on mitigating unforeseen, but urgent issues. But, but I think that those things like the tsunami in, in Japan, for example, that, that was a kind of a one-off event and it took some time to resolve itself, but it, in the end, it was nothing like COVID where it just was two years of, right, we've been two years now of continuous supply disruptions. Well, I, I, I wanted to turn to a bit your perspective on the history of supply chain visibility. It's something that I think your and I career has been there since since we started. People are talking about supply chain visibility. That's starting to be a couple decades now that it's a, it's a topic. So can you think of uh, in the beginning of your career, sort of early examples, pivotal systems, companies who had a leadership position and visibility and how those, uh, those maybe evolved uh, towards today. What was the, the evolution? Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. It's, it's a big question. But um, when I joined logistics, basically, and I worked in um, 
I had sales roles and, and, and freight and, and express type of businesses. And a lot of the discussions about visibility with customers was about sort of EDI, getting EDI feeds. At that time, I was working for DHL, of course. So uh, EDI feeds from DHL and get that type of visibility into their transport management systems or, or ERP systems or even something more rudimentary. So and EDI messages, I mean, they rely on, on, on actually, we usually relied on sort of manual scan events and, and checkpoints and milestones along the supply chain. And of course, that wasn't always... Uh, a hundred percent and um and yeah it's data capture by by human yeah data capture by very very yeah very manual and i think you know if i recall back trying to recall back like most of the discussions were about sort of like have we actually delivered something can i then you know send my my invoice or maybe service performance and 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 these type of discussions around visibility and and not sort of many strategic discussions about inventory management for example so i think then when i came to the innovation center in in 2010 there was other work ongoing on rfid tags and and basically sensors and devices that you you should, you know, you could attach to the shipment sort of RFID tags that, that it would take away some of the need for manual barcode scanning. But the, that, that technology had its challenges, uh, you know, due to price, but also due to sort of, you know, technical challenges, not being able to read out through the gates properly and then, you know, missing shipments that were not stacked, you know, in the, in the appropriate way for, for, for the gateway. So, so a lot of challenges with that. And then the sensors or so the devices were, you know, too costly. I think prices come down a lot. There's been other podcasts here, uh, other sessions on the Tri podcast and it's talked about this, but um, the price come down a lot, but still a lot of challenges with just adding a device to something because you kind of need to um, match the return flow. They're still not cheap enough. And um, it's it's still very much, I think, a niche, maybe in, co- uh, in cold supply chains and so on. But then, of course, what well, uh, a lot of development has happened on, on sort of real time visibility in terms of leveraging assets and stuff. You know, you leverage the asset that the shipment is on. It's, you know, usually, you know, first of all, it's just truck trucking and, and maybe then also now, you know, ocean visibility through where the ocean vessel is through AIS data. And um, of course, you know, airplanes are quite easy to track as well. So, you know, you just track the asset and follow, follow the asset and the shipment on the asset. And then that to sort of, a, you know, extend a great leap in this what you would say in terms of being able to see where things are in, in, in real time. If, if you got it to work, I think the first providers that were pretty patchy uh, service, they were strong in a certain region. And I think still that's, that's much the case that, you know, some of the price like P44 or uh, four kites or transform six fold. Uh, are, are, you know, have certain strengths in certain areas, but getting this intermodal visibility right is um, it, yeah. launching. And then you think about sort of like ETAs coming into play, like it's, it's, it, well, it's not so interesting to see a dot on a map, but I remember talking to some, you know, some decision makers and, and supply chains, big customers of DHL saying, well, I have about hundred rolling trucks at me or even a thousand rolling trucks at me. I didn't give it time. So just seeing it all dots on the map was not very interesting. ETAs are interesting. You know, you know, when, when will things arrive, uh, you know, predicting ETAs, but a, a lot of the, you know, the, the focus of course quickly went into sort of exception handling, you know, and being able to manage exceptions. And, and I only want to know when things are, are not going as planned and how we need to make certain adjustments to that. So I think that's where things, uh, you know, evolved into. And then, you know, since your 60 came into play with really also looking at these kind of external events that, that, you know, 2011 had a great impact on supply chains and then throughout, so always, there's always something that happened that, that disrupted. And, um, you know, you could have, you know, speaking about ports today, you know, there's, uh, I think about, you know, 15 to 20 days, you know, delay that you have to add, uh, add a lead time you have to add to certain ports and, and ports have always been sort of a little bit of a black hole. So understanding how delays at ports, due to strikes or weather, 
uh, became increasingly important than these external events and, and really calculate them into ETIs and, and therefore be, be able to drive a better exception handling. So, so I think we've evolved a lot, but there's still quite a bit of work to do in terms of really getting this into um, the systems that companies are using, TMS systems, and getting that, connecting this with uh, their ERP visibility on, on supply chains. Yeah, it, it's fascinating when you you or anyone else sort of talks through the history of supply chain visibility, some of the steps in there sound so obvious to people today. For example, don't show me where a shipment is, show me when it will arrive. And then don't show me when it really is going to arrive. Just tell me if it's not going to arrive at the expected time, right? Because if it's going to arrive at the expected date and time, then I already planned for it. I don't need my attention brought to that, actually. And uh, that sounds so simple, but in the actual history of these systems, that was years, right? Like there were years between when we solved the, where's the shipment physically or where are materials physically to, are they going to be delayed? And if so, uh, uh, notify somebody. And, and for a lot of supply chains, they're not even, that, that that's not even the case uh, concretely today. But I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, it's, it's, it, it took a long, I mean, not, not a long time, but it took, it took some time to really kind of get that mindset sort of, you know, fully, uh, you know, adopted, but then also, I mean, the, the, the step now is really to get the interoperability, uh, solved between mm-hmm. the system, real time instability on transportation, for example, like how do you connect that properly to your, your, your TMS or your, you know, inventory management system. So you really connect your POs to specific, you know, uh, assets and containers so you can really drive, uh, you know, inventory decision-making. I think a lot of, some companies have definitely achieved that, but there's a lot of work left to do. I remember kind of going to a lot of different, uh, we see a lot of different control towers and, you know, we're seeing 360 being one applications that, that they use, but they use many different applications, right? So I was always amazed by how many different screens were up there. You know, there was, you know, one for, uh, shipment visibility, risk visibility, another one for, for tracking, then maybe their air freight shipments, which wasn't integrated. And then they had their kind of also something, you know, and it, version of the ERP system up to get the, you know, some of the master data that they, that they need to connect to. So really getting all these different solutions to work together, I think is, is, is really where it's still the big challenges today. Yeah. I mean, to kind of trace back to an early, to, to an earlier comment, I, I remember reading about Walmart's uh, sort of early forays into supply chain management. They, they launched their own satellites, right? Like there, there wasn't bandwidth, there wasn't ubiquitous internet connections to their supply location. So they, you know, literally put up satellites and then set up connect, uh, physical hardware connectivity to key suppliers. But that in terms of interoperability, you just mentioned like that was only for Walmart, you know, and I I think it's gotten a little bit better since then. I I don't know very many, I don't really know any company that has gone that far now to make a kind of a standalone visibility. But I I agree with you, your earlier comment that uh, if you look at what's available today, you have a patchwork of these very good, but but ultimately niche solutions. So if you have temperature control tracking in, um, I don't know, in Russia, you're going to get a different solution and provider and data source out of that and to wire that into something else in a, you know, that's doing temperature control tracking in, in Africa, for example, is going to be a, yeah. a real headache, right? Yeah, and, and not everybody can be like Walmart, right? I think they also, you know, charter their own vessels during the, the shipping crisis we have at the moment. And then, <laughs> I mean, yeah. they can afford to do of things they can afford to have their own satellites but that's certainly not sort of everyone uh mm-hmm. so i couldn't agree so maybe m- maybe this leads into a, a question that i is kind of the meat of the questions i always want to ask people is about where do you see yourself contrarian 
and supply chain visibility. So when I think of contrarian, it's it's not to be argumentative. It's it's something that you you believe that most people don't, or or the converse that most people seem to believe something, but you have reason to doubt it. And I think that these can be very fruitful generators of sort of insights and discussions uh, for the for for the listeners. So on this topic, supply chain visibility, what what's something that you're contrarian on? Yeah, I don't know how contrarian I am on this, but so my view is that there's been a lot of focus in the in the supply chain industry on on transport visibility, uh, which is of course important. But if you think about how you invest and uh, and divide your investments in different things, um, I think uh, what, what companies the, the visibility that companies really are lacking is is more the value chain visibility that I spoke about within in the context of Altano. So uh, really understanding, you know, where your suppliers are <laughs> to start with. And as I mentioned, like initial companies that even have that type of visibility on where suppliers manufacture something for them. Uh, Walmart got there, you know, uh, in, in a cumbersome way, but um, ultimately sort of, you know, where where things originate from and, and who are the tier two suppliers to the tier three suppliers. It's interesting that um, McKinsey put out some interesting research that um, about two or three percent companies know anything about their tier three, yet that's been a lot of the disruption that we've seen now, um, you know, due to COVID and, and the crisis uh, has been issues that really originate from lower tiers. And if you think about the whole topic of sustainability and, um, you know, what consumers demand today, you know, the, the really being able to understand how things are, that they consume are produced and very little of the value creation actually happens on, on the soil where the final assembly is and, and where something is sold. And much of the value creations happens, you know, in other parts of the world uh, through multiple different steps. So consumers will increasingly demand to understand this transparency, carbon footprint, of course, you know, from that standpoint, but also, you know, from uh, more basic sort of, you know, ethical standpoints, like there are 40 million people in the world that are bound to modern slavery um, in, in, in the workforces. And, uh, that's of course unacceptable. Uh, and you can see there's a lot of regulation coming out as well. I mean, uh, we have the Forced Labor Act that come into practice in, in the US, but also Germany has this the new supply chain law coming in to act, I think beginning of uh, next year, 2023. So companies are already gearing up to understand how they, what they need to do to be compliant with the, the supply mm-hmm. chain law. A lot about sort of that visibility that, you know, who am I sourcing from? Where are they located like it? And how can I ensure that they're ethical and that they're uh, sustainable and that they treat the environment uh, in an appropriate way. So, uh, so if you ask me, sort of contrarian, I don't know how contrarian it is, but definitely, you know, transport visibility is important, and especially with this huge variability and sort of shipment lead times today, it's it's of course a huge challenge. But but I would certainly argue to invest also in in sort of value chain visibility. There's quite a long way to go for companies like to achieve that. Yeah, I, I I hear you. I I think that. I don't know what it is, but I, I I know what you mean. There's this magnetic draw in the industry towards achieving a, a world as a warehouse type visibility, where you simply can identify the physical location of all of your inventory or or precursors to inventory, maybe. And if they're in transit, so if they're at rest, you identify their location. If they're at if they're in transit, uh, you know the details of when they'll arrive at their new location. And um, this idea that treating the world, the entirety of the world as a, as a warehouse also unlocks things that retailers love like DC bypass and the ability to make yeah. commits on purchase orders for goods that are in transit uh, and the sort of unlocking the multi echelons of inventory to make it sellable. So it's not, it's not simply locked up until it gets to its final forward DC location. So very, very attractive, especially if people come from logistics because you're 
you're constantly butting your head up against the limitations of keeping track of where things are and ensuring they arrive on time. But this value chain perspective, as as you mentioned, is, I, I agree with you, is sort of an uh, overlooked area. I wondered, in your perspective, is there a minimum level of maturity that a supply chain needs to have and supply chain management needs to have before they start looking at value chain visibility? So, so do you need to already have handled to have like in transit order visibility, you know, carbon emission visibility, those sort of things? Do you need to have those things kind of underhand uh, uh, before you look at value chain, or do you see these as the, you can these can do be done in parallel? They're really. Oh, it, it, no, sorry. Yeah, another part I think it can be done in parallel. I don't think, you know, you, you, different aspects, you can work on this in parallel, basically, and, and try to get Excel in, in both directions. So, yeah, so I don't think there, one doesn't have to happen before the other one, though. Mm. And the, the play out of the value chain visibility, so the, the upside to it, if you think about like a bet, you know, if you're going to bet your, your money on, on value chain visibility and, and invest your resources there. Uh, the upsides, is, as I understand it, would be things like avoidance of kind of catastrophic risk. So third tier supplier goes out of business, second tier supplier, you know, can't fulfill orders, blah, blah, blah. Also reputational risk that like you mentioned, you don't want to be discovered to have used forced labor in the upstream of your supply chain. And then there's the general value alignment of uh, ensuring that your supply base is sort of themselves investing and developing in a direction that you want them to, right? So they're not, they're, they're growing at, at the pace and, and direction that you yourself are trying to grow. Are there other levers or mechanisms that you expect value gets created out of a, a value chain visibility? No, I think you hit the key things, but, but also maybe adding um, on the, you know, when you think about how you plan and potentially redesign your supply chain, I think there's a lot of CEOs at the moment, they're asking yeah. uh, head of supply chains about how you want to redesign, how you could potentially redesign your supply chain. So, and, and what scenarios yeah. in the future you're, you're ready for. I think many of those questions become, yeah, you answer those questions very in a very shallow way. If you, uh, if you don't have, I mean, a, a more of a value chain view on an extended view on the supply chain, um, across sort of tiers, because yeah, if you think about lead times, well, you could be fine with your lead time from your direct supplier, but you know, why are they not getting input materials? Um, and I think also, I think this era of kind of pushing viability just, you know, upstream. Uh, so, so I want to hit my thing just in time just for my production. I don't want to hold inventory, uh, mm. or as possible, but I want my, my direct suppliers to be able to always deliver. I mean, that era is really, I think over. <laughs> <Like a few content. laughs> Now you have to build trust in, 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 in supply chains. And, um, we've had conversations with, um, you know, chief procurement officers where they try to understand sort of, you know, the lead times, you know, why lead times aren't working and, and they need to look beyond the direct suppliers and understand like, okay, who's, who's the tier two or where, where are they? Are they somewhere in China? How can I, can I meet with them? How can I discuss, uh, you know, my business plans with them as well? So we can see that we're aligned. So. I'm not saying, you know, you can always get to the, the, the perfect map and, and get to all in the extreme 11 tiers yes. deep supply chain. Uh, it, it is challenging, you know, we slowly get there, but, but definitely I think, um, taking a few more steps deeper will help you when, and just, you know, planning your supply chain, considering resourcing decisions, um, yeah. or looking at sort of multiple suppliers, you know, dual sourcing or multiple sourcing, how do you best do that? And how do you make sure you're still not sort of reliant on to a few sources and, and lower tiers. And 
which also leads back to this sort of topic of, of risk and, and concentration risk and, and the supply chains. There's been a lot of disruptions around that, but but I think you know fundamentally it's 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 now becoming a much broader topic in terms of just being able to um, drive necessary changes, supply chain planning changes um, going forward. So, well, well, you raised you raised something there which I, I just want to double click on, which is perhaps one of the reasons why you know you you brought up that you're contrarian on the overemphasis on on uh, in-transit or, or inventory visibility and more uh, want to have more emphasis on value chain visibility. Maybe part of the reason is, is that you're describing decisions and, dis- and decision outcomes, which are, are really the area of procurement, right? So they're, they're procurement decisions and they're procurement outcomes. Maybe, maybe part of the, the paradox here is that it's called it, it sounds like it's supply chain visibility, but it's really a procurement function, a uh, procurement tool. Is that is that fair to say that value chain visibility primarily manifests itself through procurement decisions? It's almost like a philosophical discussion, you know, what's supply chain, what's procurement, and, and you know, what's its where and which companies and who's, who's sort of reporting to whom. I, I think mm. and I think you just need to look at it more holistically. Like, yes, it's it's procurement, but it's also how you source and how you design your supply chains, which suppliers you make yourself reliant on um, and making sure that that they can deliver the necessary capacity or that you at least, you know, get indicators for when when, when there is capacity issues so you can start to uh, see if you can do something that in your production network and, and plan around that and, and maybe uh, allocate more to other suppliers. So, so, so yes, it's, it's, of course, it's related to procurement and sourcing and, and picking the right suppliers or working with the right suppliers, building the relationships and really building that trust, as I said, from a procurement standpoint, but, but it relates a lot to supply chain decisions as well. So, mm. so I would hard to say that this is sort of just, you know, for procurement, I think, uh, the supply chain procurement, however, it's organized and companies have to work together to solve some of these issues. Okay. So just. Briefly, you know, what, what's something that if you had to give one suggestion to uh, to supply chain leaders right now would be a, a no regret move that you think they can take on on visibility? I, I imagine it's something like <laughs> take value chain, <laughs> take value chain seriously. But uh, but is there something concrete within that? Because that that's still a large endeavor. That's a that's its own projects and life cycles. Is there some something kind of uh, s- smaller that's a no regret move in your mind? I, I'd say no regret move is probably to get um, get prepared for scenario planning, right? Really, so um, the cost for shipping is, remains on very high levels. You know, how, what does your supply chain? How can your supply chain cope with that in terms of the cost impacts? And as I said, like many CEOs will start asking about sort of possible changes, how you source differently. So, um, or what if what if sort of the issue with this issues with China become more extended? Um, how um, how can we kind of you know? And make ourselves less dependent on this. So really, you know, running through different scenarios and having some of the basic data for that, I think, would be a no-brainer. Whether you do it with digital twins, I think that's an, an interesting topic, um, but also, you know, more, uh, you know, simpler methods to get to to better scenario planning capabilities. That, I think that would be a, yeah. definitely a no. Yeah, scenario planning or scenario checks against a a budget or a plan. Uh, can be done at at all levels of sophistication, right? I mean, it can be as simple as when a departmental or regional uh, regional plan is put together, having a list of of uh, questions to ask to to pose in return, like, could you do this if, or would would this be feasible, assuming X, and just go through a list of I don't know ten possible scenarios and 
that's the very low end of the sophistication. The very high end of the sophistication could be uh, that all those things are continuously done, automated, digital twin uh, twin supply chains, and and so on and so forth. So it's a it's an interesting. Uh, I, I like that as a no regret move because it it suits sort of every level of sophistication from supply chain uh, organizations out there. Yeah, no, no, definitely. I I, I think so. And yeah, I think there's there's more you know there's simple ways to get to that when you think about scenario planning. Just understanding, you know, running through some of the the, the key scenarios that are likely to hit you, you know, and then that you need to be prepared for. So, uh, on the planning side, on transportation side, on shipping costs, on sourcing decisions, and and sort of you know potentially assuring decisions. So, and also tra- you know trade barriers. We haven't talked much about that, but like what you know what what's the future perspective of that? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. shifting trade, of course, very difficult and 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 not sort of make in many cases economically feasible. And as you know, another interesting study that McKinsey did was that they, they, they asked before, um, you know, during the crisis, sort of what some of the, uh, you know, key changes that supply chain leaders were, were contemplating and, and sort of the nearshoring aspect came up in I think 60% of the cases, but then they asked sort of like, I think one half years later and only 10% had actually been able to do something about that. So, so, so I think it's definitely, you know, understanding which scenarios you, you, can be prepared for what's what's realistic is, is uh, you know, yeah yeah time or spent. I'll I'll just throw out there what one of the things I've, I've done in the past I continue to do is I check um, I check future bettings betting markets. Uh, one of the challenges anybody will have when they do this is coming up with the li- the concrete list of scenarios to consider. And there are many possible scenarios in the future. There are many ways to break you know a, a company's plan or or budget. And you only want to prepare for the for the ones which are the most likely and getting that perspective requires some internal expertise. But one of the ways you can do it is you can look at betting markets and just to throw out two that I know by heart, I find super fascinating, you know, betting markets put over 40% chance that Russia invades Ukraine in some manner, you know, goes to war with Ukraine in, in some, in some manner more than they're already doing today with occupying areas and something like a 10% chance of military confrontation between China and Taiwan. Now, both of those have yeah. incredible supply chain consequences, you know, worldwide really, but but uh, but especially for folks in Europe, if uh, we have a, a lot of listeners in Europe, just the, the magnitude of the consequences of either one of those is huge. And yet I, I know very few companies that are sort of looking at and saying, hey, the betting markets say there's a 40% chance of this and a 10% chance of that, you know, are, are, are we ready? Yeah, absolutely. I I've never thought about it this way, but but that could maybe potentially be an interesting input to uh, scenario planning and <laughs> seeing what are some of the high likely scenarios and, and very um, far up one and and from you know from betting platforms. So yeah, that, that's an interesting perspective. So so the last question I had for you was if you this is again something I I like to ask people, but if you think about what would be breakthrough fundamental changes uh, in the area of supply chain visibility. You know, what's an event or a development? And some of these could be technical. I, I, I think obviously if we get, just as an example, if we get uh, active RFID down to a price point where it would be feasible to produce and throw away at the end and not have to return or recycle at the end, uh, hopefully, uh, that, that might be an example. Uh, but it could be technical, it could be legal, it could be something about changes in the business, uh, in the business cycle. Uh, for example, if, we, we, if there really was a disruption between uh, China and Europe and U.S. Uh, uh, trade uh, because of a, a military confrontation in Taiwan. 
But can you think of an event or breakthrough that, that from your perspective would be something that just would be absolutely a fundamental change to the use of supply chain visibility? Yeah, I think, I mean, um, AI will support, I mean, you mentioned sort of RFID tags and, and then they coming down to, so certain active RFID tags coming down to cost where you can actually throw them away. I, I, um, I, <laughs> Uh, I don't like to throw things away, but I think, you know, you're right, Nix, and if, if that can, if that can materialize, I think there, there's merit to that type of technology would make sort of visibility, take a huge step forward in terms of visibility. But I think also AI in terms of using, uh, you know, both public and, and learning from, uh, you know, private data from enterprises in order to really understand how everything is, is, is linked together in the supply chain. And I think there's just going to be huge kind of leaps forward online data. There's much more data out there uh, that, that just has to be sort of organized and, and stitched together in a way so you can actually, uh, you know, query it. So AI, I would add that to that. But then some of the regulatory changes that are uh, that, that we're seeing now, and also on the EU level, I think there will be something coming out which is going to be potentially even stricter than the German supply chain law, will, you know, just force companies to focus more on supply chain visibility, understanding how they do business, who they do business with. There's a huge regulatory push and also for national security reasons, uh, you know, governments want to know what supply chains look like and and, um, and, and that will drive a lot of innovative technology as well. So, but I think also simply, I mean, on a more simple level, a consolidation in terms of software vendors and, and software applications. So as, as you said at the beginning, there's so many different applications and supply chain visibility, some focus on uh, on temperature control, some focus on, on risk, some focus on transportation visibility in our strong in certain regions. And then everyone has an ERP system, right? So, and how do you get this to this work together? So I think, you know, consolidation in the, in the software industry would also lead to better solutions, hopefully, and more ECT solutions. You see a lot, a lot of innovation in, in, in low tech at the moment. I think there's a lot of great innovation coming to play, but, you know, to really have a solution that drives sort of, you know, more prescriptive decision-making sort of like prescript prescriptions on what companies have to do or automated, even automated sort of supply chain decision-making. This has to be a lot of sort of consolidation of these technologies coming together and, and just the interoperability of those will, will make a huge difference. Yeah. I, I mean, when I think personally, when I think about supply chain visibility progress, I see it predicated on three foundations. One is the capture of data. The second is the integration of that data into a kind of a, so from the point of capture into wherever it might be needed in a, in a later stage. And then the third is uh, using that to interrupt a decision that would have been done through path A and switch to path B. I mean, not physical paths, but just if you don't interrupt a decision, it kind of doesn't matter, right? Like if you, if you capture the data, you, inter- you do something with the data, but then it never results in a changed decision, then by definition, you know, you didn't need to capture data or, or integrate the data. And when I look at these three steps, it's sort of da- data capture, data integration, and and insertion into decision-making, it kind of looks like all three still need to, to, to mature because although there's been great things on data capture, uh, there's so many things that are captured by hand and, and kind of laboriously and incorrectly and not in a timely manner. The data integration, I think we talked about to some degree already is like, it's just a patchwork. There's just no dominant player or da- or standard even. Let's, let's not even talk about companies, let's talk about standards, right? And then the insertion into decision-making is very much pivot chair, kind of swing from one system to the other. Human being decides in the middle if they're actually going to use it or not. Don't really have any capture about how they used it. 
et cetera. So it's sort of, if I look in the future, actually, I would imagine that there's a lot more maturing left to do in this space along the same lines that you described. Yeah, fully agree. I mean, I think supply chain today is still very opaque. So there's there's a lot of capturing of data still needed. And, and um, there are good examples of, of sort of prescriptive decision-making in supply chains and, and where, you know, the real-time data that it's captured flows into a decision that's made to drive sort of, you know, a tangible outcome. Um, mm. But there's just companies that have achieved that. So so I think there's uh, there's a long way to go on in all these three areas. So I, I couldn't agree more with you, Jonah. <laughs> well, Tobias, I just want to thank you again for coming on the show. It's been really interesting for me. I, I'm sure it's going to be very interesting for the listeners as well. And uh, I hope that sometime in the future we can have you back and we can look at how things are going with uh, Altana and the work that you're doing and what's been achieved in the meantime. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure, Jonah. Well, thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Right, that was the Logistics Tribe podcast episode on supply chain visibility with Tobias Larsen. If you enjoyed today's show, please make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss any of the future episodes. Thanks for listening. I'm Boris Felgendreher. Until next time.